episode of Coronavirus The Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group, and was responsible for the healthcare of over 5 million Kaiser Permanente members on both the West and East Coast. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author and professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful, fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What should our listeners know about the week that was? First, today is Memorial Day, a time to honor those who died in military service defending our nation. It also is a fitting time to recognize the many people, including first responders, nurses, and doctors who have died in the line of duty caring for people with the coronavirus. I say that in no way to diminish the debt. We are those who were killed in the two world wars, Vietnam or Iraq but to highlight the spirit of mission, purpose, and dedication of all who put the lives of others ahead of their own. When it comes to the coronavirus, it was an eventful week. Nearly all states began the process to reopen businesses, restaurants, and beaches, albeit with major restrictions. We obviously won't know the exact impact of this transition relative to the number of people who will become infected and the toll it will take on them several weeks. As listeners know, in general, there's a five-day lag before people become symptomatic after contracting the virus, a couple of week lag until they become sick enough to need hospitalization, and a three to four week lag until they die. As such, we can't be sure whether this is the equivalent of the calm eye of a hurricane with a major spike coming next or bombier days in the future. Deaths in the U.S. will pass the 100,000 mark today or tomorrow. When it happens, the media will make it headline news, but it shouldn't be. Once a virus with an R0 of close to three, meaning that each infected person will give it to three others under normal social conditions, and a virus with a lethality somewhere between two and a half and five times the flu begins its exponential spread, 100,000 deaths is not just predictable, but certain. What the headlines should trumpet is that despite millions of people having been infected, no one died from not being able to get admitted to a hospital or placed on a ventilator. This is a triumph for our nation. All deaths are tragic, but ones in people that could have been saved, but they weren't due to overwhelming our hospital capacity, those would have been inexcusable. People should be proud that the number of these coronavirus deaths from lack of medical care was zero. Robbie, I know it's still early in the process of analyzing the impact of the virus on different segments of the population, but what have we learned? 
The Center for Disease Control, the CDC, released new guidance this week for public health officials. It reported that a third of coronavirus infections are asymptomatic. This is extremely important information for three reasons. The first is how impossible it will be for this coronavirus, unlike SARS and MERS, to prevent transmission of it by isolating people with symptoms, such as elevated temperature, or by testing, you would need to check almost the entire population every day to find the asymptomatic individuals. Second, it tells us the vital role that masks, face shields, and social distancing play. They diminish the spread from both asymptomatic people as well as those who have symptoms. And based on our current understanding, asymptomatic individuals are just as contagious as those with symptoms. In fact, the CDC estimates that 40% of transmission happens from people who are not feeling sick. Finally, this report indicates we may be moving towards herd immunity a bit faster than we might otherwise have thought, although we have a massive distance to go. The CDC also lowered its calculation for the lethality of the coronavirus. It said that the best estimate is that 0.4% of people who show symptoms and have COVID-19 will die. The third of people are asymptomatic, then the total mortality would be even lower, far less than the numbers people feared even a month ago. I'll be publishing an article in Forbes tomorrow on how we can apply what is called the Pareto Principle, or 80-20 rule for keeping ourselves and our loved ones safe during this reopening period. Pareto was an Italian economist in the 19th century who pointed out that in a wide range of areas, a small, well-defined part of the population accounts for most of the effect. As a corollary, by segmenting people into two groups with the coronavirus, we can approach each group differently, maximizing the outcomes for both. As an example, the CDC data showed that for people age 65 and older, the mortality of those who become ill is 1.3%, while for people under 50, it's 0.05%. That's a 30 times difference. And yet, few of our recommendations on social distancing have offered specific advice based on which group the individual is in. Similarly, we've talked in this podcast about the data from New York. It demonstrates that 88% of people who die have at least two chronic diseases, particularly hypertension, diabetes, obesity, chronic lung disease, and heart failure. The precautions elderly people with two or more of these risk factors should take is very different than for younger individuals who are completely healthy. At the same time, given what we know about the frequency and ease of transmission from asymptomatic people, how healthy young people act will have a massive impact on mortality, not of themselves, but their parents and grandparents. What we've learned in the coronavirus, we are all in this together. Robbie, at the start of the week, Moderna announced the first results of its vaccine testing and that they were positive. What should listeners make of this? 
Jeremy, I find this initial data very encouraging for multiple reasons, but it also has a disturbing aspect. Let's begin with the vaccine itself. The vaccine labeled mRNA-1273 uses what is called a messenger RNA approach. This means that rather than injecting a weakened form of the virus itself, as in many vaccines, such as the one we use against polio, or even a protein from the shell of the virus, scientists can use a much simpler and easier approach. The mRNA vaccine is made from genetic material that contains the instructions for cells to manufacture a particular spike protein on the surface of the virus. Theoretically, by inducing the recipients of the vaccine to produce antibodies against this material, it would prevent a portion of the virus from being produced, making it impossible for the virus to penetrate human cells and infect people. One big advantage of the mRNA approach is that the process of making this type of vaccine is very quick. Within less than a month of the first infection in China, scientists had discovered the exact genetic composition of the virus. It then took only two months for Moderna to manufacture the vaccine and begin testing human volunteers. The reason it can be accomplished so quickly is that genetic material is built on only four nucleotides or letters, although DNA and RNA differ in one of them. And yet the problem with this approach is that despite all the logic, all the rationale behind it, no mRNA vaccine has ever panned out in clinical trials for any virus. That's why doctors were so interested in learning what happened in these first vaccine trials. Although the vaccine was given to 45 volunteers, the data Moderna released was only on the first eight. That's a minuscule sample. That alone was disappointing. The good news was that in these eight, it was safe, and it appeared to generate neutralizing antibodies, the ones that prevent the virus from entering cells when tested in the laboratory. This is very positive. The problematic side was what Moderna did with this phase one trial data, or maybe I should say what they didn't do. This type of outcome from a phase one trial would normally be labeled, in quotes, extremely preliminary. The data and information would then be sent to a peer-reviewed journal, and scientists would know for each individual in the study the exact level of antibodies produced. But none of this happened. The company refused to release the information. Instead, it organized a huge media event with broad generalizations about when the vaccine might be available. The company's stock soared. This for-profit-driven approach to vital medical information that's needed for national policy planning should never be handled in this way. As an example of all eight of the individuals had strong responses, consistent with what we see in other types of virus vaccines, that would lead public policy experts to take one approach, one that could protect Americans and revive the economy and jobs in a predictable way. On the other hand, 
if on average there was a reasonable response, but in some of the eight it was excellent, and some was okay, and in some not existent, that would be totally different. In that case, the vaccine might be helpful, but it would not eliminate the danger, and it would imply for the United States a multi-year problem. Even the age of the eight volunteers wasn't disclosed, although we know that they were over 18 and under 55. Knowing the age would be helpful if the subjects with the most effective antibody response were the youngest in their 20s and 30s, and the ones with no response in their 50s, that would imply the vaccine would be ineffectual in protecting the elderly, those at greatest risks of dying. We still don't know. The usual excuse for not releasing data is not wanting to help competing companies develop products. In this case, that was unlikely to be the reason. Instead, I suspect that the actual scientific data would have been far less impressive than the press release, and the information would have led to a much toned-down optimism and limited stock price jump. Further raising questions about the solidness of the findings is the fact that this study was done in conjunction with the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and when asked, they declined to comment at all on the results. This anti-science approach to treatments for coronavirus is reminiscent of Gilead and our discussion last week about its refusal to do the types of scientific testing for its drug remdesivir, along with the mysterious video we described on the effectiveness of the medication that was posted, but no one claiming responsibility for it. And this week, the company took another step in the wrong direction. It announced that it would be giving the drug remdesivir to 8,000 people, but in a totally non-scientific way. There won't be any comparison placebo group. We won't know how effective this medication is compared to doing nothing. The medication will only be administered through what's called an open-label approach. An open-label approach makes sense when a medication has been proven highly effective and is readily available, but neither is true for remdesivir. At the same time the company announced an open-label approach, it was dealing with the fact that there will not be enough of the drug to come anywhere close to meeting demand, at least initially. As such, it would have been simple in the context of demand exceeding supply to do a randomized controlled clinical study. But the company said no. It's not hard to imagine the reason. If they knew that the impact would be minimal, if at all, when compared to people who didn't receive the drug, and they might in the context of the World Health Organization data released previously, that showed there was no difference in mortality, then this would be very problematic for a medication with a huge price tag and profit margin. When asked, the company continues to refuse to comment on this issue. So let's get back to the vaccine. Moderna has approval from the FDA to begin phase two trials with 600 volunteers, half of whom will be over 55, to further understand the immunity generated. I would hope that the FDA would require the data to be publicly available as soon as it is completed 
So scientists and doctors can make predictions about what's likely to happen next year in the United States when the vaccine could be commercially available. Unfortunately, I suspect that rather than releasing the scientific information data needed, the company will use a spokesperson who will describe the results in vague but very optimistic terms. Assuming the phase two trials confirm that the drug is relatively safe, phase three trials, which test to see if the vaccine actually prevents disease, would then begin later this summer. Ravi, I've actually heard from multiple news sources in the past few days that based on the results coming out of Moderna, that they think we could potentially have a mass-produced vaccine distributed as early as October. Uh, What are your thoughts on this? I don't believe that October is a reasonable date. Remember, this has to go through multiple additional stages of testing. And if you get it wrong, it can clearly harm people. And even then, we have a lot to learn about if it's effectiveness. And that's going to take well into 2021. People are hoping for an end to the pandemic. And obviously, the company would like to be the one that has the vaccine that all Americans receive. But to believe that this race to prevention, I'll call it the race to cure, is only a few months away, I think is the triumph of hope over science. I don't think we should be planning it to be available at least into the early part of 2021. And even then, remember, we don't yet know that the vaccine that has been developed will, in fact, be able to prevent people from coming down with the disease. It's why I get so upset when companies put their profit ahead of the health and safety of people. There is no excuse for this company not releasing all of its data. If we had that, Jeremy, we might be able to make a better prediction. Given what we have right now, there is no way to know. And believing a publicly traded company about its product we're learning is a fool's errand. Many of the business leaders I talk to are wanting more information on the economic issues. What are you hearing? Jeremy, as you know, business owners are questioning how much longer they can wait to reopen without having to close permanently. The long-term threat is a two-headed monster. First, they're the businesses themselves that have had to continue to pay rent and other fixed costs without revenue to offset them. The owners have had to dig into their own savings and retirement funds, and more than a third don't believe they can survive this fall and into the early winter. Second, there are the employees who don't have jobs, and they don't have the income to spend once a variety of businesses reopen. As you know, there are only 1.7 million Americans getting unemployment payments before the coronavirus, and now it's 
25 million, and I predict that the data will come out this month will indicate the number to have reached 30 million, or one in five working Americans. This growing anxiety can be seen in the shift in Google search results from medical questions about the virus to inquiries on jobs, unemployment, furloughs, and government aid in the context of the virus. The economic impact on people's lives has become as great as concerns about the virus itself. How are doctors and hospitals faring during the COVID-19 pandemic? Jeremy, both are having problems. Physicians have seen a 60% decrease in the volume of patients they're treating and a 55% decrease in their income. They have rent, malpractice, and other fixed costs to pay. Similar to other small businesses, their cash flow is negative. Although virtual medical care is soaring, the revenue from it is less than for in-office visits. And for routine care and preventive health services, people are just putting them off. When it comes to certain services like cancer diagnosis, we're likely to see the delay resulting in greater medical problems and worse clinical outcomes. In pediatrics, parents are skipping routine visits for their children, and the rates of vaccination are going down. In many ways, this impact on doctors in private practice parallel what's happening to private universities where students are delaying coming back, online programs are generating less revenue, and expenses aren't decreasing nearly as fast as revenue. Similarly, hospitals have seen a huge decrease in revenue, both because they have had to cancel elective procedures to reserve beds for patients with the coronavirus, and because people are worried about having these elective procedures performed in facilities housing individuals with this virus. The greatest drops in volume have been in eye, spine, and joint surgery, all major money generators for facilities and doctors. Across the board, Hospitals are reporting a drop of over 33% in every service with huge financial consequences. For hospitals that have been teetering on solvency, this virus could tip them over the edge. When you replace highly profitable lines of medical care, particularly elective surgery and procedures with low margin acute treatment of infectious disease, it's financially devastating. So far, we've seen spine surgery decline by 45%, total knee joint replacement by 68%, and cardiology interventions by 35%. Robbie, there's a company in Iowa that's manufacturing face shields as an alternative to face masks. Um, And actually, some of the research coming out of the University of Iowa has said that these are just as effective as masks. Uh, What are your thoughts? Jeremy, it's interesting for several reasons. The first is that plastic is 100% resistant to any virus-containing liquid that hits it. The second is that these types of protective devices are quick and inexpensive to manufacture. The third is that they're much more comfortable to wear than a mask. Finally, they address the cultural fear Americans feel when they are approached by a masked stranger. As such, getting people to wear a face shield could prove much easier and universal than cloth masks. What we can't be sure of, despite the excellent research coming out of Iowa, 
is how protective they will be. There are two forms of transmission. The first is droplet, and here we should expect that face masks would be just as effective. Droplets are relatively heavy particles that quickly fall to the ground. So their danger comes from a person coughing, sneezing, or speaking right at your face. Face shields get in the way. The second is aerosol. These particles float through the air and they enter our nose when we breathe. A face shield would not be protective against these air transmissions, air that can wafe up under the bottom edge. Fortunately, when it comes to the coronavirus, it's appearing that transmission is more likely through droplets supporting the research that you mentioned. Jeremy, there's a growing debate among doctors as to whether patients will continue to seek virtual medical care once a vaccine is here and their medical offices become fully functional again. Based on your conversations with others, what do you think? This is interesting because I actually used telehealth for the very first time for a virtual visit um, during the pandemic, and I absolutely loved it. It was for something super basic. I was able to continue working while I was waiting in the queue. I didn't have to go in and wait in the waiting room. It was literally, you know, my phone was sitting next to me as I continued to work. Boom, you know, time for the appointment quick five, 10 minute conversation. And then I just had to go pick up my prescription later that day. Now, that being said, I love the convenience of it. And I think, you know, and I've talked to other people who've had similar experiences. And I think, you know, for something super basic, like an ear infection or pink eye, um, or even just a question for a doctor, I think a lot of people that I've talked to are going to want to continue to use this and will actually probably demand it going forward. Jeremy, despite many stores being able to reopen for sales on the East and West Coast, that is assuming that people wear masks and keep six-foot six distances, they remain closed. I assume that the owners were worried about the cost of paying their staff in the context of reduced foot traffic and store volume. What are you seeing in Iowa in the middle of the country? Robbie, where I live in Iowa, many of the stores and restaurants opened back up over the past week. Uh, restaurants can now seat patrons. I did not go to a restaurant over the weekend, but everyone I drove past on my way to the store had a packed parking lot and not a mask in sight. It was very interesting. Um, a few weeks ago, for example, I would say about 70% or so of the people in the store had masks on yesterday when I went shopping. I would say it was closer to the uh, 10 to 20% range. Um, even based on conversations I'm having with people locally, they seem to think that because we're opening back up and we haven't really been hit hard in this area, that the risk is basically over. Uh, many people think that if they're not in an at-risk group, such as a senior citizen or diabetic or something, they can return to life as usual. It is very interesting how different this is and what I'm experiencing here from what you've said you're experiencing on the coasts. I've actually heard the mortality rate from the coronavirus not only varies by age, but also race and socioeconomics. Is, is this accurate? Jeremy, this is a tragic situation. As an example, African-Americans in Wisconsin comprise 6% of the population, but account for half of the state's 
deaths. In Chicago, two-thirds of deaths are in blacks, double the proportion of blacks in the population. In New York City, the death rate is twice as high among black and Latino individuals at 20 and 22 per 100,000, while it is less than half of that for whites and Asians at only 10 and 8 per 100,000. Similarly, the mortality correlates closely with zip code and socioeconomics. If we divide all the zip codes in New York City by income and then look at the death rates, we find a shocking difference. In those in the bottom quartile for death rate, meaning the fewest deaths per 10,000 people, those living there have double the annual income of the individuals living in the zip codes with the highest death rates. What we're seeing here are the social determinants of health. Overall data says that these factors have a three times greater impact on people's overall health and longevity than the medical care they receive. In the case of this virus, the biggest risk of dying is not related to the medical care given or the distance to the local hospital, but it comes down to getting the virus in the first place. The wealthy can work from home in jobs that lend themselves to video conferencing, and they have savings if they're furloughed. The poor worked in low-paying jobs. They couldn't afford to miss a day, even if they were symptomatic. And they traveled in congested subways and buses, being exposed to others and risking transmitting it themselves. They died not because of anything they chose to do, but because they had no choice. It's tragic. Although some health policy experts have argued that this should be the moment in history that our nation recognizes the unfairness that exists when it comes to health care, I'm doubtful. The virus will change American health care dramatically. And you and I will be talking about these improvements in a future episode. However, it won't shift our country's underlying value system. In fact, I worry that the current pandemic will have the opposite effect. When a vaccine is available and the coronavirus is no longer a threat, our nation will need to address what is likely to be a $10 trillion price tag for the battle that was fought. Cutbacks will be needed in spending and they are likely to fall heaviest on programs that impact those living in the same high mortality death zip codes that exist today. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the hosts, please visit our contact page on our website or send us a message via LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.